something isn't right. Do you, do you feel that? I, I don't merely mean in this room. I, I mean everywhere. Something isn't right. I don't mean just now in this moment. I mean all the time. It's like something is off kilter in our world. Something's off kilter inside of us. And whatever it is, it's significant, isn't it? In fact, it's crucially significant. But what is it? I think all of us that have reasoning capacities, we acknowledge that we feel that. We feel that something isn't right. And if we're honest, we would have to admit that from the moment we're born, we all go on a quest trying to fill whatever that is that's missing. We try to fill that with whatever seems to promise happiness, with whatever it is that promises to give us some sense of purpose in life. What is it? What is it that's missing? When I was a boy growing up in a Bible-believing church, one of my Sunday school teachers said, we're all born with a God-shaped void in our hearts, and we all try to fill it with something. You know, I, I don't know how much of a theologian she was, but um, I find it interesting that a theologian that many of us respect said something very similar. R.C. Sproul wrote in his book, In Search of Dignity, he said, modern man has an aching void. The emptiness we feel cannot be relieved by one more gourmet meal or another snort of cocaine. We carry water in a sieve. When we try to fill the empty space with a better job or a bigger house, ours must be a transcendent quest, going beyond the trivial to the ultimate questions of our worth as human beings. I find that insightful, don't you? That trying to find some answer to that void we feel in our hearts and the things of this world is like trying to carry water in a sieve. It doesn't work very well, does it? But what is it? What is it that's missing? What are we on a quest to find? J.R.R. Tolkien of Lord of the Rings fame. Some of you realize that he was a believer, and he wrote other things besides that trilogy. In fact, he wrote one time this. He said, we all long for Eden, and we are constantly glimpsing it, our whole nature, at its best and least corrupted, its gentlest and most human, is still soaked with a sense of exile. Now I realize some of you uh, maybe are still waking up from um, a busy week. But think about what Tolkien wrote there for a minute. He says, we all long for Eden. Even in our best moments, even when we're at our best, even when things are going really well, when we feel good about life, there still is in the back of our conscience this sense of something's missing. A sense of exile. What was Tolkien referring to? Why did he say a sense of exile? Today we begin a five-week Advent series. Pastor Mark has laid out a plan for us to see one of the most central themes in the whole Bible. Literally, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. 
in the month of December, we will go from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 trying to follow a thread. A thread in the Bible from the first page to the last page that could be summed up in one word. Emmanuel. What does, some of you kids could answer this, what does Emmanuel mean? Any kids want to tell me? What does Emmanuel mean? I hear people whispering it. It means God with us. That's right. God with us. Did you know that was one of the major themes in the Bible? It's a major thread from the first page to the last page. God with us. Emmanuel. I think as we better understand this theme in the Bible, this related theme from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, that it'll begin to help us find biblical answers to the question, why do I exist? Who am I? You know, we live in a world that is given to this concept that look within, be true to yourself. That theme is popularized in books and movies and classrooms. You need to be true to yourself. Look within. Follow your heart. And I would say that following that theme in life, following that direction to be true to yourself, look within, you're going to end up confused and empty. Other people say, well, maybe the answer's out there somewhere. Maybe the answer's out there in the world. So people go on this quest trying to find answers to those crucially important questions. Who am I? Why do I exist? They try to find it in their workplace. They try to find it in popularity. Try to find it in things. And they find themselves still empty, still restless. That wasn't it. And so as you know and I know personally and from friends and family members, if they try things from this world or try to find answers within and still find themselves hungry, still find themselves restless, they try to dull that pain in one way or another. If I can't fill that void, at least let me dull the pain of that void. And so we live in a culture where people try desperately, legally and illegally, to fill that void with one thing or another to dull the pain. No, looking within for answers to life's biggest questions isn't the place to look. Looking around for answers to life's biggest questions isn't the place to look. We don't look within. We don't look around. We look up. We look up to God and his word. And so I invite you to join me in God's word this morning in the first page. The first page of our Bibles, Genesis chapter 1. Let's begin at the beginning before sin messed everything up. Okay, here's another question for the adults, but also for the kids. What's the very first sentence in the Bible? How did God, the Bible's a big book. What was God's opening statement? What's God's opening sentence in this big book that we know as the Bible? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created. I would like to suggest, for your understanding and mine, I would like to suggest that God is like, it's, it's dangerous to say God is like, because God is a like other things. But if you'll allow me to at least try to paint a picture, I, I would like to present that God is like a master artist. And he has created the universe as his canvas. 
that God is wanting to display his attributes, his glory. God is wanting to display himself in all that he's made. And so the universe is the canvas of the master artist, and he paints attributes of himself, characteristics of himself on this canvas, and different things show different character traits of God, different attributes of God. And you can follow some of these in your Bible. Some of these are well-known verses, like Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God. Or a little broader context in the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, verse 3. The, the whole earth is full of his glory. Or it's fascinating that even in the book of Romans in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul said, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And so I just picked several of these. You can find others. But you can trace in the Bible that God created this universe for a reason. And one of his primary reasons for creating all that exists is so that he could put his glory on display. The master artist painting his portrait on the universe. But we have a very specific question this morning, don't we? It's not just why did he create the universe in a general sense, but quite specifically, why did God create us human beings? Or to bring it down more personally still, why did God create you? Why did God create me? Why do we exist? What is our purpose in life? Are you in Genesis 1? We quoted the first verse. Let's read verses 26 through 28. I'll read them aloud as you follow in your Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In all of creation, human beings are unique. Now, we live in a society that has largely cut itself off from God, ignoring God's word. And so there's an unbiblical leveling going on in our culture. But God says clearly in his word that mankind, human beings, are distinct, are unique. We and we alone are image bearers. There is something about us it's different. That answers the question, who am I and why do I exist? I want to show you an illustration that helps me in thinking through this. <coughs> that we're image bearers. And if you look on your screen, let me show you um, here a little bit about us image bearers. That's us, a human being. And there's a representation of God by a triangle, the Trinity. And one thing God did for us as human beings is he made us to represent him here on the earth. That we are to represent him, to rule in his name. 
that Adam was put here as a, a vice regent, or a term that we might be more familiar with that I like to use is, he made Adam to be a prince. God is the great king, he is the high king of heaven. And as the high king of heaven, he created this universe. And then on the earth, he put a prince. He put an image bearer, the man Adam, and his wife Eve. And he said, I want you to represent me here on the earth. I want you to rule the earth in my name and for my glory. It was a delegated authority. I want you to reflect me, my values, my priorities as the great king. This is not exploitation language. This is care language. As human beings, Adam and Eve had the responsibility to cultivate the Garden of Eden, to protect it, to guard it, to encourage order and fruitfulness in this royal sanctuary. As I was talking about this subject to our grandkids recently, I was trying to think of an analogy these grade school kids and preschoolers would get. And, and what I came up with was this. I said, it's like God made us mirrors. They were like little mirrors. And God wants his glory to be reflected on this earth. And so he made human beings, these image bearers, to reflect his glory. And we have this purpose in life, we have this mission in life to reflect the glory of God. And not only individually, but also he wants us, what did he tell Adam and Eve? Fill the earth. He wants this earth filled with little mirrors. He wants the earth filled with little mirrors who aren't looking at themselves, but reflecting him. God's glory is the best good thing. It's, it's the best good thing. It's the best of the best. And he says, so I want you distinct creations, these image bearers, I want each of you to reflect my glory. And Adam and Eve, one of your missions is fill the earth with other mirrors. Now part of that, of course, would just be progeny, you know, that they would have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and that human beings would multiply and fill the earth, which is a very good thing. But if I could just be anachronistic for a minute and jump ahead till after the fall, you and I know that there are many mirrors in this world that are not reflecting God very well at all. Self-focused, self-promoting, not reflecting the glory of God clearly at all. Or as I explained it to the grandkids, it's like mud smeared all over our mirrors. That sin is like mud smeared all over our mirrors and we're still mirrors, but we're not reflecting him very well. But as we're redeemed, in Jesus Christ, the ultimate mirror comes and cleans up our mirrors. We're to be looking for other mirrors. We're to be compelling other people, calling other people to come and fulfill your created mission of reflecting God and his glory. Repent of your sins. Have Christ wash you of your sins so that you could join us as mirrors reflecting his glory. God wants the whole earth filled with his glory. It's a de delegated rulership. But there's something else in this passage that I want you to point out. I want to point out to you. And that is this. That not only is there this horizontal responsibility of ruling the earth, representing God here, but you'll notice there's also this sense that human beings are unique and that there are certain ways we resemble God. That comes out in this language of being in his likeness image bearers. There are certain ways, and people have wrestled with that. What all does that mean? And we could speculate. We could come up with our list, what we think that means. 
But one thing we know it means is that human beings can relate to God like no other creation can. There's something about us. There's something about us, human beings, that we can relate to God the way no animal could, the way no plant could, the no, no inanimate object can. Even though these other things, in their own way, reflect the glory of God, as human beings, we're different. We're special. We were made, in some way, to resemble God and therefore to be able to relate to him as nothing else can. It's a very Godward purpose in life. I think of this relationship as like, in some sense, like a son or a daughter to a loving father. That as a son or a daughter of a loving father, we can relate to him. We, we experience his love. In experiencing his love, that relationship, that loving relationship, we, we reflect that back to him. Or maybe like an ambassador who has a friend who's a king. And the friend is appointed by the king to represent me. Would you represent me in this other place? And there's this relationship of warmth and support and, and a, a mutual enjoyment of one another. And God put Adam in this place where he very personally could represent God and relate to God. Your Bible's open to Genesis. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. And we're going to see how personal this is in the case of Adam. Genesis 2.5 says this, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now, some of us are familiar with this passage. For some of you, maybe this is the first time you ever heard it. But does that feel very personal to you? That feels very personal to me. <clears throat> now, I'm not saying that God has literal physical hands like we do, but the imagery here, so that we can understand it as, as humans, it's as if God took his own hands and he took some of the dust of the earth he had created, and he formed this image bearer, he formed this man with his own hands. And then having formed Adam in his own hands, as it were, he then personally breathed into his nostrils the very breath of life. And God is very personally involved in making his image bearer, creating his image bearer, and giving him life. And then he made this royal park, he made this royal sanctuary, to put his image bearer in. It was to be home to Adam. He put it there, and it was a beautiful place. It apparently was warm. They didn't need clothes. We appreciate that here in northern Indiana. I mean, not that we don't wear clothes, but <laughs> we get cold, and to think of living in a land that's always perfect temperature sounds kind of nice, doesn't it? It was well watered. There's this language of rivers and mist. And to the Israelites, when Moses wrote this, they were out in the wilderness. Oh, this must have sounded good to them. A place that was well watered. And, and there's this description of all this fruitfulness, all these fruitful trees available to Adam and his wife Eve. Just a beautiful royal sanctuary that God put his image bear in. He says, now I want you to take care of this. I want you to cultivate it. I want you to keep it. I want you to guard it. So Adam had this responsibility to, to relate to God 
and also then relating to God to represent him as he managed the Garden of Eden in this way. But this loving relationship that God had with his image bearers gets heightened uh, by an implication from chapter 3, verse 8. You can let your eyes drift down there to chapter 3, verse 8, and <clears throat> even though this is a negative-sounding verse, there's something in there that should make us lean in and say, I'd love to know more about that. In chapter 3, verse 8, we read this phrase, the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, or literally in the breeze of the day. The picture that's presented here, apparently, is that God would come in the coolness of the day. And that phraseology to the ancient people would have been a depiction of relationship. That here is the elevated one. Here's the great king. And this great king is coming to the garden he's prepared for his image bearing. And Adam, let's... Um, let me use my sanctified imagination, if you will. That God comes, maybe in the person of the pre-incarnate Christ himself. That God comes to the garden and says, Adam, let's take a walk. How was your day? Oh, I love what you're doing over there in that part of the garden, Adam. That's great. Adam, I made all this for you, son. I want you to enjoy it. I want you to reflect me and enjoy my glory and, and be that mirror that I created you to be and that God would come and commune with his image bearer in that very personal way. Can you picture that? God would come and relate to his prince in a gracious way. And I don't think I'm too far off in my imagination to guess that when Adam and Eve heard the king coming, that they would run toward him. That as they were doing their work and cultivating the garden and keeping it, guarding it, being the keepers of God's garden, that they would hear him coming. And I can picture Adam saying to his wife, here comes the king! And they'd run toward him and Enjoy their walk as they reviewed the day there in the garden. But one day, but one day, Adam and Eve heard that familiar sound. And they did not run towards the loving king and greet him as they had on previous days. But on this, the saddest day, the saddest day ever, the prince and the princess ran away from the king away from the sound of the king coming. Why? What, what had happened? What went wrong? That the prince and the princess are now trying to run away from the king. They're trying to run away from the sound of the king coming. Look at chapter 3. And let's just read the first seven verses of chapter 3 for now. It says in Genesis 3, 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them, both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. We read earlier about paradise, but now we read paradise lost. What was this subtle scheming of the serpent? If I could summarize what the serpent is doing here, I would summarize it this way. He tells Eve, you don't, you don't have to listen to God. When he said, did God actually say? He's wanting Eve to question the authority of God. The God had authority to speak. You don't have to listen to God. Another one of his schemes is you don't have to believe God. <laughs> you will not surely die. You don't have to believe what God says. And then the kicker is this in verse 5. You don't even need God. If you eat of this fruit, you're going to be like God. You don't need God. You can be your own God. You can chart your own course in life. You can be the determiner of what's true and untrue. You can be the determiner of what's true and what's false. You don't need God to explain things to you. You don't need God in your life. You can be your own God. So how did Eve respond to Satan's subtle scheme in the person of the serpent? For one thing, and this is maybe not quite as obvious at first, but she downplayed the relationship she and Adam had with God. If you'll notice in verse 3, she speaks of God in general terms. She said, God said. And you say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, if you go back to chapter 2, verse 16, where it talks about God actually speaking this, look at 2.16 for a minute, and you'll notice there's a word missing in Eve's response to the serpent. In verse 16, it says, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you shall... Surely eat every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. The Lord God. <clears throat> See the word Lord there, the capital L-O-R-D? That's a way of describing in our Bibles God's personal name, his covenant-making, covenant-keeping name. It's God's personal name. In the Hebrew, it would come out something like Yahweh. And so when God spoke that to Adam, Yahweh, God said, the Lord God, the personal God, the God who's in a covenant relationship. But when Eve speaks back to the serpent, she leaves that out. And she's already, in a sense, distancing herself from God. Instead of using his personal name, she just uses kind of a general name. But then Eve minimized God's generosity by leaving out the word every. When she talked about the fruit trees, did you catch that? In 3.2, she said, God said we could eat of the tree. But if you compare that with 2.16, God actually said you can eat from every tree, except these two. You can eat from every tree. And so here's Eve. She's already distancing herself from the personal covenant-making God. And then when it comes to his generosity, that he has been so astonishingly generous with Adam and Eve, she, she kind of minimizes that. She leaves out the word every. 
But not only does she minimize his generosity, but then she maximizes his restriction. God says, all these trees, Adam, and all these trees, you can, you can eat from whatever you want them. I'm, I'm accepting these two trees, Adam. Don't eat from these trees. You can eat from any of the other trees. All the other trees are available to you. <coughs> but when Eve talks to the serpent, talks back to the serpent, she maximizes the restriction, and she adds a phrase. Did you catch that? You shall not eat of it. What did she insert? Nor touch it. Now, if you go back and read chapter 2, God didn't say that. And so now she's developing this picture of God that's not accurate to his self-revelation. God had revealed himself in a very particular way, of being very generous, very gracious, very personal. She's distancing herself. She's minimizing his generosity. And now she's maximizing the restriction. But then to top it off, she minimized the consequences. Did you catch that in verse 3 of chapter 2? She said, lest you die. And we might say in modern American something like, in case you might die. In case you might die. Is that what God said? In case you might die? Don't eat of this tree in case you might die? What does 2.17 say? Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You shall surely die. God spoke categorically. God spoke absolutely. You eat of this tree, death's going to enter the human race. You're going to die. But Eve took that and she softened it. She minimized it. She said, you're not supposed to eat of this tree. In case you might die, lest you die. And so here's Eve. She's being sucked into this. And there's this distancing herself away from God and repackaging God in ways that are less than the way he's revealed himself, that are distorted from the way he's revealed himself. And so Eve took the fruit and she ate it. But what about her husband? What about Adam? Where, where was Adam during this fateful conversation? Where was Adam? It says, it says he was with her. Adam was not off, you know, planting more beans or something. <laughs> Adam was with her when this happened. That's what it says. Now, one of Adam's responsibilities was what? To keep the garden, to guard it. It was one of his royal responsibilities. In a sense, it was one of his priestly responsibilities. That he was to guard the sanctuary from anything that might come and hurt, dilute it. Where did Adam had dominion over the animals. God gave him dominion. He delegated dominion over the animals to Adam, his prince. How did the serpent get there? Adam, how did this serpent come in here? You're supposed to be guarding the garden, Adam. You're supposed to be keeping the garden. And so Adam's blowing. He's already blowing it, and he hasn't even taken his bite yet. He didn't guard the garden, and he didn't guard his wife. Instead, with eyes wide open, Adam was not deceived, Paul tells us. Adam was not deceived. With eyes wide open, Adam joined his wife in rebellion against the great and gracious. If I could describe what's happening here, I would say something like this is going on by the actions of Adam and Eve. It's as if they're saying, we don't need God. Let's determine our own course in life. It's, it's my life. It's my life. I can decide what's true for me. I can decide what's right. 
I don't need God telling me what to do. I don't need God telling me what's true. I'll chart my own course in life. In fact, it'll be a lot better if I do so. Until now, what happened? How did that work, Adam and Eve? How does life without God work? I'm still open to Genesis 3. Let me start reading in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? By the way, just to interrupt. God knew perfectly well what just happened, didn't he? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. A lot of blame shifting happening already, isn't there? So Adam and Eve were taken in by the serpent, thinking life would be better without God. Life would be better without God telling me what to do. Life would be better without God telling me what's right and wrong. God would, life would be a whole lot better if God weren't trying to control my life. Their dream of becoming like God quickly turned into a nightmare, didn't it? And suddenly Adam and Eve heard the sound that they used to love, but now they dread. It's the sound of God walking in the garden. I picture maybe Adam saying something like this. Eve, quick, over here. God's coming. We've got to hide, Eve. Quick, let's get behind these trees. And it's such a sad picture, isn't it? That the prince and the princess of the garden are hiding. Eyes wide open, hearts pounding, knowing that God will find them and wishing he wouldn't. Oh, that these shadows were dark. Where can we hide from him who sees all and to whom we must give an account? And these image bearers who had sought their own freedom now run like fugitives, prisoners of their own guilt. These two image bearers who thought they would be like gods now cower behind some trees foolishly trying to escape the sight of him who sees all. The trust that they had known, the trust of innocence, was replaced by the fear of guilt. Their happiness had been replaced with misery. Their dignity had turned to degradation. Their friendship with God was now enmity. Their joy in the benevolent king was now replaced with shame. And now comes that humanity-shaking, history-changing question. Adam, where are you? As I've meditated on that question, I'm impressed that it's probably the second saddest question ever to be asked. Topped only with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus.
to that most sad, soul-gripping question, comes it in the bottom of her heart. But as sad as that is, mixed in is an encouragement that a holy God is seeking this sinful human soul, living that kind of life. So now what's going to happen to these foolish, sinful image bearers? Our ancestors, Adam and Eve, Look at the end of chapter 3, verses 22 through 24. This says at the end of this passage, it says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man... And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword, which had turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The image bearers, Adam and Eve, the prince and princess, were exiled from the garden that God had prepared for them. And as sad as that exile is, as Tolkien says, we live even in our best moments with a sense of exile. There's grace in God's decision to exile his sinful image bearers, to keep them from eating of the tree of life in their sinful state. Had they eaten of the tree of life in their sinful state, they might have lived forever, they would have lived forever in that sinful state beyond redemption. So God sends them out, and instead of Adam guarding the garden, the holy sanctuary, now cherubim, angels are guarding it. You know, this story of man's refusal to live out God's given responsibility to reflect and to spread his glory seems to end on such a sad note, doesn't it? A picture of a broken relationship between a prince, a princess, and the great king who loved them. And yet, tucked away in the story is a hope-stirring promise. Do you know the promise that's tucked into this sad story? Look at verse 15 of chapter 3. We don't want to leave today without seeing this promise. Chapter 3, verse 15, God says to the serpent, actually, He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The first Adam failed, didn't he? And we, sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, we fail as well in disobeying our Lord. What hope is there that our sin will ever be pardoned? What hope is there that the death sin brought will ever be defeated? What hope is there that the curse will ever be lifted? Is there anybody able, is there anyone worthy to do those things, to pardon our sin, to defeat death, to lift the curse? You know, I said that God made us like little mirrors, didn't he? that he made us to be image bearers to reflect his glory. And the first Adam failed. He failed. He sought his own glory instead of God's. He sought his own way. But interesting, God never abandoned his plan for human beings. He never did. Instead, what did he do? He sent another Adam. He sent the second Adam, the, the last Adam. Who's the second Adam? Jesus Christ. 
God didn't abandon his plan for us human beings. He didn't abandon his plan for image bearers. But instead, he sent his own son as a sinless human being. He sent the second Adam. And as the author of Hebrews says, he's the exact representation of God's being here. Exact representation. He's the perfect image bearer. The perfect image bearer. Tell you what, I'm going to go to Hebrews 2 and I'm going to invite you to join me there. Hebrews chapter 2. I want us to read a fascinating passage that helps us understand not only what happened in Genesis 1 through 3, but also helps us see the hope that what Adam and Eve did will be reversed. In Hebrews chapter 2, let me start reading at verse 5 for sake of time. The, the preacher, the, the author of Hebrews says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. He's actually quoting from the Psalms here. What is man that you are mindful of him? Listen carefully. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with honor and glory, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Does that sound like what he did for Adam? Yeah, it does. And it's like the psalmist, now quoted by the author of Hebrews, is saying, God made human beings to have dominion. God made human beings to be reflectors of my glory, to represent me, to rule this earth in my name. And in a sense, we sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, we human beings, we image bearers, that's still on our job description. That's still our mission in life, to reflect God, to relate to him, and to represent him. And yet, do you feel successful in that? Do you feel like, yeah, I'm doing a pretty good job of reflecting God, of representing him, of ruling this earth in the name of the great king? When your own cat won't obey you? And you think, yeah, I'm supposed to be ruling the earth in the name of the great king for his glory? And you realize, that it ain't happening. Okay, I didn't finish reading the passage yet there, Adam. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 2 continues there in verse 8. It says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Do you see what the author of Hebrews is saying there? He's saying, we human beings, we still have the same job description, but we're not doing it. We're failing, it, failing at it just like our ancestor Adam did. But not abandoning his plan for human beings, not abandoning his plan for image bearers, God sent the perfect image bearer. He sent his own son in human flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And even though we don't see ourselves in that capacity, yet, the author of Hebrews says, we see Jesus. Did Jesus defeat death? Did Jesus sin on the cross to pardon sin? And will Jesus lift the curse one day? Yes. And so we find the hope, our hope in Jesus Christ. And one day, as 
we will see in the last sermon in the series, we will be restored to our rightful place. In fact, it will be better than Adam and Eve. And we will rule under the auspices of the great king alongside Jesus himself. We'll be restored one day to our rightful place as God's image bearers. Princes and princesses gladly representing the great king in a new heaven and a new earth forever and ever. So as we reflect back on this first sermon in this series, Emmanuel, I want us to acknowledge afresh that something isn't right and we might as well be honest about it. There's something off kilter in our hearts, in our lives, and in the world around us. And some of you here today who have not yet experienced God's saving grace, I want to kindly warn you, if I can, not to try to fill that void in your life with some idol of this world. It could be anything. I, I, I actually started making a list of my sermon notes, and I thought, <laughs> this could be a really long sermon. It could be anything. We're born with this void in our lives. We're created to be image bearers of God. And because we've inherited the sin genes, as it were, of our ancestors, Adam and Eve, rather than living for God, we live for ourselves. Rather than believing God, we think that we have our own right to come up with our own answers of morality, ethics, meaning in life. And when we feel that void, we try to fill it with something. We try to fill it with something. And whatever your something is, the theologians call that an idol of the heart. Any, anything, anything that we try to grab hold of to give our life meaning, to try to fill that emptiness we feel. Anything other than God himself is an idol. And, and I want to just point that out to you today. If you're trying to find your happiness in life and meaning in life and whatever, stuff, popularity, whatever, it's actually an idol of the heart. It's going to leave you still unforgiven and still empty, restless. But don't look inside yourself. Don't look around to find answers. Look up. And even here in the opening pages of the Bible, as Tolkien said, we realize that we all long for Eden. But we recognize that something's been lost. Paradise has been lost. But in Christ, paradise is being regained. And paradise one day will be regained in the new heavens and the new earth. In the coming weeks, we're going to hear four more messages. The last one being in the last page of the Bible. So I encourage you to come back in the coming weeks of Genesis, excuse me, in the coming weeks of December as we continue to walk through. I realize some of you are out of town, you can listen online. But I want to point out to you the promise that awaits us at the end of this series. Here in Genesis, we read in chapter 3 of Adam and Eve hiding. That they were hiding from God. They didn't want to see God. And yet the last page of our Bible, Revelation chapter 22, it says, They shall see his face. So those restored hearts, restored lives, restored affections, one day we will see the face of God himself. Revelation 22, 4.